Hey everyone, the It's All Journalism team wanted to remind you that we have an email newsletter where you can get all the latest news about our podcast. Go to our website, itsalljournalism.com, and follow the link to subscribe. Thanks, and enjoy the episode. But then during the pandemic, you know, TikTok exploded around the world. We were all stuck inside and super bored, mindlessly scrolling on the app. Because of my previous work, I thought domestic workers were probably on there too. When it comes to TikTok, most people think of it as a fun app that's used to create videos to entertain your friends. For one journalist, TikTok proved to be a valuable tool in exposing the mistreatment of women migrant workers in the Middle East. I'm Michael O'Connell. This is It's All Journalism. Louise Donovan is an award-winning journalist who has written about reproductive rights in Kenya, who was embedded with an all-female biker squad that was fighting sexual violence in Jaipur, North India. She joins us today to talk about a recent reporting for The Fuller Project about how female domestic workers are using TikTok to share their experiences working for families in the Middle East. Louise, welcome to It's All Journalism. Thanks for having me. So first of all, and I mentioned this when we, you know, we turned on the microphones or before we turned on the microphones, you've had a pretty colorful career. How did you end up getting interested in journalism? For as long as I can remember, I, I wanted to be a journalist. There just wasn't really anything else I thought about doing. I was quite laser focused about it. And I, I loved reading both books and magazines. Like I had stacks of Elle and Vogue and Marie Claire in my room as a kid. And when I left for university, I dragged this stack of magazines up with me. And then every subsequent flat that I moved into in and around London, I'd bring this ever-growing stack of magazines with me. Like My bedside table was made out of about 50 old magazines. But I didn't quite know how to break in. I didn't really know anyone who worked in the industry and like I just started sending off dozens of cover letters to various places and I eventually landed a two-week internship at my local newspaper which was in North London at the time where I'd lived and from there I, I just sort of started hopping around and then I, I worked at my student newspaper the editor of that student newspaper I think it was their aunt knew someone who worked at the Telegraph which is big newspaper in the UK and so I went there for three months and then yeah just hopping around I eventually managed to get a six month paid gig at GQ magazine and I was paid minimum wage which is like mega bucks to me and I just remember being so tough that someone would actually pay me to work at a magazine yeah and from there I was just moving on and baby steps upwards. So what was it about the magazines that you think appealed to you? I loved the features in the magazines. I loved the stories, you know, particularly magazines like, you know, Marie Claire is traditionally in the UK is known for doing, you know, foreign reporting was one of the few. And GQ, they did, you know, they did really hard hitting stuff in there. You know, I remember one story, I think it was like in like the early 2010s about solitary confinement in the US and you know like it was becoming a human rights issue and the journalist had gone and lived in a in a container to try and see what solitary confinement was like you know and it just sort of brought a whole new world to my quite small <laughs> world and you're learning about all this stuff and you know that you didn't really know about before and magazines sort of brought 
that to your door. In the introduction, I mentioned a couple of the, um, you know, the stories that you're involved in. You, you lived in Kenya for a while, and then you, you, know, you also covered sexual violence in, in Jaipur, North India. When you're thinking about the stories you want to write or the, the places you want to go, what are you looking for? What, what types of stories appeal to you? So let me give you an example. I ended up working at LUK magazine, and for a story there... I traveled to India that you've mentioned this in your introduction is to report on an all-female biker squad that was fighting sexual violence and I worked with this brilliant Indian photojournalist on the ground called Smita Sharma he's super talented you know we landed there there was a protest in Delhi I met Smita in the cab for the first time there was like <laughs> there was like camera bits and like microphones like flying around it was super hectic it was like over 40 degrees but we really got stuck in you know we ended up making a short documentary about this biker squad and it really brought a fresh perspective to the issue of violence against women in India and enabled sort of a complex story to reach a new broader and younger audience at LUK and those are the exact kind of stories that I, I really love covering and that had always wanted to cover when I was obsessively reading women's magazines all those years ago but I had realized that there were there were a lot of stories about women that were actually missing from the mainstream media including a lot of those women's magazines that I had been reading and so you know when I joined the Fuller Project which is where I work now you know it really allowed me to continue doing those kinds of stories that I really wanted to work on you know it's to highlight those sort of underreported issues that affect half of our population. Do you like stories that you can just sort of get stuck in on that you can sort of embed yourself in? Yeah, I mean, that's the journalist dream, right? You want to really want to get stuck in and, you know, get involved with the subject of your story. I mean, it's been pretty difficult during the pandemic because most of my reporting has been from the room that I'm currently talking to you in. But for that particular story in India, we spent 10 days there with this biker squad, like really getting to know them. And it wasn't just, we didn't just follow them and you know film them when they were at work. We went to their homes, we met their children, we met their family. It really adds, I think, depth and dimension to your story when you're sort of not, you're not just popping in and out. And this is something that the, the Fuller Project are quite, you know, really believe in. It's not just parachute journalism you know you're really spending time there and you're you're teaming up with reporters on the ground and you're you know you're bringing in a diverse range of voices to the story i do want to talk a little bit more about the fuller project but since we're kind of on this subject here i I would like to ask you a couple of questions about it because some of our listeners are younger journalists who are just starting out in their careers and they may see the work that you're doing and the types of stories that you're covering is something that they might want to aspire to. How do you, well, let's, let's talk specifically about the India story. How do you, I guess the word I want to say is how do you protect yourself? How do you plan for how you're going to cover a story to make sure that you're going to be able to you know, embed yourself effectively, but also are aware of your surroundings and your situation? I think whenever you're planning a reporting trip, that all goes in to the pre-planning. And so if you're talking about, you know, safety and protecting yourself, that is something that 
you need to have addressed head on before you've left, before you've even got on the plane. You need to think about what could potentially put me in danger here. Do I have an exit plan? Do I have people who know exactly where I am and can you know, help me? Do I know the local organizations that can help me? Do I know the embassy that can help, you know, my local embassy in the country that I'm in? That's all very much part of the planning. I I reported out of El Salvador as well. This was with the Fuller Project and those stories were about femicide. So that's women being killed because they're women. And El Salvador is, you know, it's, it's not exactly the safest there's high, high violence against women there. I was lucky enough to have editors around me who, you know, we put a safety plan in place. You know, we checked in on WhatsApp. I sent constant updates of where I was. I gave them my plan of my day. So that's stuff you, you do really need to think about. And I think it helps if you're working, you know, with teams on the ground. So Smita, the photojournalist who's brilliant, you know, she... She lives it day to day. So she is very, perhaps more so than me, very acutely aware of some of the potential dangers. And I think that's where it's important to, you know, really work with journalists on the ground who arguably do know the lay of the land better than you do. Thanks for sharing that, because I think it's kind of important because I've talked to various journalists who've who've gone out and, you know, and covered wars, have gone to other countries and to cover, you know, violence against women, violence against you know, immigrants and things like that, you know, these, the stories that you're writing, the stories that you're covering are stories that need to be covered, but they also, you know, present their risk. And I think it's just worthwhile when there's somebody who's had that experience is willing to share it, it just sort of hear that. So let's talk about the Fuller Project. How did you get involved with it? And what's the, the mission? The Fuller Project is a nonprofit newsroom dedicated to groundbreaking journalism about women. And we seek to raise awareness and expose injustice and spur accountability. You know, we have reporters all over the world and we work to provide a nuanced understanding of both global and U.S. news. And by doing that, we're incorporating diverse perspectives into our stories. And we hope that every story that we do has an impact on the lives of women. Another big thing that I've already sort of touched on is that, you know, we're all about partnership particularly with other newsrooms, you know, in a quite a competitive industry, you know, we partner with people to reach more diverse audiences and amplify voices, whether that's, you know, with a local journalist on the ground or the stories being syndicated, you know, not just in international outlets, but into African outlets as well. You know, for example, last year we partnered with 25 newsrooms around the world. And before the pandemic, I was actually based in East Africa working with journalists inside the Day Nation, which is one of Kenya's largest newsrooms. And we were working together, we were co-bylining stories to publish with both, you know, both places like The Guardian and The Telegraph, and also into the Daily Nation in Kenya. What were the, the stories that you were covering in Kenya? One of my first stories that I did when I got there, and the, the Daily Nation had done this big investigative series called Toxic Flow, which was looking at the pollution of the rivers in in Nairobi and the surrounding areas. And in one of those stories, there was one sort of throwaway line that had said in one section of a river in Nairobi, I think it was 
maybe eight to 10 abandoned fetuses had been found. And then the story moved on. And the reporting that I was there to do was to was about gender and was about women and was to get women's voices into the newspaper more. It was quite a jarring line <laughs> because, you know, if that had just popped up in any other newspaper in the UK or the US, I, I just it wouldn't have been such a throwaway line. But it's quite common. It's quite common in Kenya because of access to reproductive health and, and contraception. You know, it happens a lot. And so I teamed up with a journalist to look into the issue and to try and understand why it was happening and why it was increasing. And so I, I did that. And I then actually did a follow-up story about that during the pandemic because the pandemic, you know, cut off supply chains, global supply chains to contraception and kids were out of school and it was happening again. So we've done a couple of stories on that. We've done stories on sexual violence I also became aware when I was there of large numbers of young women were leaving Kenya to go and work in the Middle East. This is as domestic workers, so cleaners and nannies inside their employer's home. And I was hugely interested in why these women are going and why they were leaving and what they were doing there. And so we started to report on that. I developed quite a good source network. I wrote some of those stories for the Daily Nation And then during the pandemic, I wrote a story, again, on a similar issue for the New York Times about domestic workers who were stranded and locked up and abused in the Gulf during the pandemic. You know, that was a really interesting story because, you know, I'd reported on it previously. I was in touch with a lot of domestic workers and one woman, I started messaging her on WhatsApp. You know, at great risk to her own personal safety, she told me what her situation was. And she was sending me pictures of her and eight other women locked inside a room. They didn't have any food, water. You know, one was chained to a wall, another one was pregnant, and she hadn't had any medical help. You know, that story was possible because, you know, I had been looking into it, I'd been researching it, I'd been reporting on it. And then that story actually led me to the TikTok story. <laughs> so tell me the story of the TikTok. Sort of explain what this is. You know, we're talking about the domestic workers that you've already sort of established a rapport with and made connections with, where does TikTok fit into this? Yeah, so, because I'd previously written a lot about domestic workers, and these are women predominantly from Asia and Africa who head to countries like Saudi Arabia and Qatar to clean the homes of their employers. So I was well aware that they often face quite exploitative and abusive conditions. Like previously, we'd spoken on other social media platforms like Facebook and WhatsApp. You know, and domestic workers, they're far from home. They live inside their employer's home. They have very often have very little freedom. And a lot of them told me they're very lonely. So they've they've long used social media to keep in contact with their friends and family back home. You know, and I'd spoken to them on various social media platforms. But then during the pandemic, you know, TikTok exploded around the world. We were all stuck inside and super bored, mindlessly scrolling on the app. Because of my previous work, I thought domestic workers were probably on there too. And so I started looking for them. Now, when you say they're using using it to communicate to, to each other, I mean, and their families, were they telling their families that, that they were in these really bad situations and that they couldn't get away? Was there any concern on their parts that their employers or whatever the program they were part of that placed them would somehow find out about this? 
you know, they're allowed to use social media. I think the difference is previously domestic workers would use things like WhatsApp to individually speak to their family. So, you know, their employers are never going to know if you're on Facebook, you know, you're usually in a community with other domestic workers, you know, you would know the Facebook group that you want to go to because someone has told you, you know, there's this organization and those domestic workers are in there, here, join it. I think the thing about TikTok that is different is that it's very public. It's much more public than the previous methods of communication because anyone (laughs) can go on TikTok and you know, the algorithm is no one understands the TikTok algorithm. You know, anyone can come across your video. I'm a writer. I'm an editor. I'm a reporter. Let me ask you a good reporter strategy story. What's the one thing you wanted people to know about the story you were writing? I think for context here, it's important to, to know a little bit about these women's lives and the the structures under which they work, because most foreign domestic workers in the Gulf are employed through a sponsorship system that gives employers almost total control over them. Uh, They're unable to change their jobs or leave the country without permission from their employer. And so their bosses are, they're able to confiscate their mobile phones, their passports, physical and sexual abuse are common, and they're very vulnerable. And these abuses have been documented, you know, quite a lot before. I've reported on it, others have reported on it. It's nothing new that this sponsorship system is quite exploitative. I think what was different with this story is that not a lot of women previously were taking to a very public platform to talk about it. And this is what I found out through my reporting. I didn't know if domestic workers were using TikTok. I just started having a look. And it turned out that they they were, and some of them were using it like everyone else, just to have fun and to pass the time. But others were really using it to document these abuses and these often like exploitative working conditions they face every day. And so back to your question, that's what I wanted people to know is that there were women really raising awareness of the issues that they face very bravely uh, and they, you know, they not only wanted to tell women back home who might decide to head over to the Middle East to work, to tell them about the realities of it, but also they were telling women around the world, or, or TikTok users, I guess, around the world. I mean, one of the characters in my story, Brenda, she's from Kenya. She made a viral video where she talks about certain things she faces she doesn't have a day off she fights with her family and in that viral video in the comments you know there's almost 5,000 comments on that video but it wasn't just other domestic workers you know agreeing and sharing their experiences it was women from the US and women from the UK and people from the Netherlands being like wow I, I didn't know that this was a thing please tell me more how can I help so it was really these women who are spreading this word and trying to raise raise awareness and really creating these communities on TikTok. And that's what I really liked about your article is that because you had these videos of the women, you know, the people, women you identified as brave women who were speaking, you know, in a very public forum about, you know, what was happening to them, that you helped to spread and elevate their message and bring it to people, an audience who isn't familiar with TikTok. 
I mean, there's certainly a lot of value in that. Um, do you, I mean, it, what, what is that? This was published by the New York times. Did you get much feedback on this story? Yeah. So the story was shared wildly, widely among sort of civil society, you know, migrant rights organizations. I'd had reports that it had been part of a discussion about racism on clubhouse. You know, and people in Arab and African communities were talking about it too. You know, people had read the story and headed over to Brenda's TikTok account and she was sending me screenshots of comments saying, you know, I'd read this story in the New York Times. I'm here because of that. Are you still in this situation? Like, please tell me. And, you know, I'm really like asking questions and about her situation, which is, I mean, that after interviewing her several times I mean that's what her aim was here she wanted to raise awareness and to let people know and you know really give people a look into women's lives that often people don't really pay that much attention to sometimes when you write a story like this and you know people will comment on the story but the actual fact that because you include the videos the the TikTok embeds in this that people are able to communicate directly with the women who who've made these videos and you know to show their support and you know also to relate it that you know hey this this message you're, you're putting out there you know i've read it i i'm affected by it and i want you to know that i've been affected by it that's that's really kind of powerful both in the way you presented this and just the fact the access this provides for these women and their story is this sort of typical, you know, obviously not TikTok, but is this kind of typical of the, the type of work the Fuller Project does? So in all of the reporting that the Fuller Project does, we hope to raise awareness of situations that women face and that aren't talked about in the mainstream media. And you know, we hope that every story drives impact um, in some way. I mean, that could be, you know, that could be a policy change. That could be a government stepping in to help women you know women is repatriated and I think in this case it's raising awareness about issues that domestic workers in the Gulf face during the pandemic which you know are ongoing but they're nuanced and they change and things evolve and I think we also wanted to show that while TikTok is a fun and entertaining platform filled with you know videos of dance routines and like lip syncing and it's also an important way for certain groups and communities to stay connected, like these domestic workers, you know, they're sharing their experiences on there and they're raising serious issues that they're facing. I mean, a lot of the women that I spoke to for this story, I reached out to dozens of women. Some of them didn't want to talk, a lot did. But I think the thing that they, one of the main themes that kept coming up was that, you know, they say that they, a lot of them suffer from, their anxiety and depression and loneliness and they say that when they're then scrolling through videos of other domestic workers on TikTok and they you know they see a domestic worker talking about you know her employer's son sexually harassing her but it's told in kind of you know the video is presented in quite a funny humorous way it kind of alleviates a lot of their stress and their pain if they've been through something similar and they see someone else on there doing you know, talking very openly about that you know, many of them told me that it was really comforting and it really created a bond between all of them. You know, a lot of them made a lot of friends on there. You know, they might not be in the same country in the Gulf. One might be in Saudi, one might be in Qatar, but 
they do the same job and they're facing the same issues and they're talking constantly about it. So I'm scrolling through the the Fuller project here and I see there's another story with your a byline with your byline that says workers in factory that make Kate Hudson's fabrics or Fabletics mm-hmm. active. That's a word I've never seen before. Fleba Fabletics <laughs> active where alleged rampant sexual and physical abuse. Before you were talking about, you know, when you're in Kenya and you're reading a story and you, and you see just a, a casual mention of babies floating in a river, the reporting that you you did about these domestic workers, you know, that connected with TikTok, you know, how do you attune yourself to find these stories or people pitching these stories to you? Yeah, the TikTok story very much came out of my previous reporting because I knew that domestic workers face certain issues and I had reported on it a lot. And then I think at the same time, I was spending a lot of time on TikTok as well, like the rest of the world, (laughs) just mindlessly scrolling. And so I think that that is really about building a beat and developing a beat and paying attention I think to to issues and not just moving on from the story and not just writing one thing and then saying you know I'm done with this now I don't think anyone I mean no one had written about domestic workers on TikTok really specifically in terms of women talking so openly about their abuses and I think it takes someone who is is paying attention and has written about it to sort of connect the dots there. And I think that's a a good plus point for having a, a beat and a developing an expertise in a certain area. Yeah, I mean, it's clear just seeing the variety of stories that you write in what you've explained to us about the TikTok thing. I mean, the TikTok thing could, could at the very minimum, could be a hook for a story about uh, domestic abuse. But, uh, you know, I think you elevated it into something else. But the fact that you're, as you said, you developed this beat, these types of stories are on your radar, and the experience that you've gathered from covering these types of stories, I mean, it's clear that you're looking for something like this. You seem to have a good news sense and a good story sense about this is going to be worth worth writing about because it's going to amplify this issue. You know, what are you going to be working on next? Um, what am I working on next? Well, I had just finished had spent many months investigating the alleged abuses that were taking place at the factory in South Africa that was making clothes for Kate Hudson's brand. And so I'd sort of dedicated (laughs) many months of my life to that. And so I'm sort of now in the lull where I need to find something else. (laughs) But I'm sure something will turn up. Oh, it's not like these, you know, these injustices and things are going to disappear. There can be plenty of things to write about, unfortunately. But, you know, the fact that you're where you're at and that you're looking for them and, like I said, elevating these types of stories, I think that's something to uh, admire and aspire to for other journalists. Louise, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. While you're visiting our website, sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. 
You'll get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsaljournalism.com to subscribe. Speaking of subscribing, you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere good podcasts are found. If you'd like to help us grow our podcast, like and share our episodes on social media. Look for us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy wrote our web content. Nick Capre wrote our theme music. Emilio Brust helped with our booking. Steph Thomas is our social media manager. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Thanks for listening.